and welcome back to another episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss two new cameras, actually. And, of course, myself, uh, DJ from DSLRFilmNoob.com, if you haven't heard of me. Uh, the, this is my podcast. And it's Mitch, you're joining me today. How are you? How you been? How you been, man? Damn, I thought you were going to let me take over the show this week. No, I don't. that kind of threw me off my game last time. I was not on top of my normal moves. But you, sir have uh, been reading all of the information coming in for a bunch of new cameras. Has that excited you? Are you on the edge of your toes, edge of your seat, something of that nature? <laughs> it is early, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm pretty interested. Now, the problem is, of course, money, right? Um, <sighs> let's talk about the 1DX. All right. We're going to skip the early banter. because. <laughs> There's a ton of camera stuff to talk about with these two particular cameras, and I think it's time for the... Time for the news! Time for the news! Time for the news! All right, let's dive into these beasts. Mitch and I started talking about these, the 1DX uh, last episode, and it was just sort of starting to leak information out. Now we have the full list of specs, so we can kind of cover this completely and in its full detail. The 1DX is going to set you back... A very substantial amount. It looks like five thousand nine hundred and ninety-nine dollars, and this and ninety-nine cents. ninety-nine cents. So six thousand dollars. Let's just say it. It's six thousand dollars. This camera is featuring basically all the stuff that we were looking at in the One DC originally, with some upgrades to the AF system as well as many other features. Mitch, roll in to the features of the. 5, 5D. No, the 1D <laughs> Mark II. The 1DX Mark II. 1DX Mark II. 1DX Mark Man, II. this is it's like hard. the longest Canon name yet. It's hard. Because uh, I did a little quickie video with uh, Barry Anderson, my good friend, and the night that it was released. And I kept thinking that I was saying the wrong words the whole time. It was just a mess. The 1DX Mark II. Uh, I'm excited about this camera. Uh, there are some negatives, quote unquote, some things that we wish it had. Uh, if I had $6,000 that I was going to drop on a DSLR, now not purely a video camera, right? But I've had the 1DX. I, I the B&H photo, let me give them a cash register. B&H sent me a 1DX two years ago for a couple of weeks. Oh, man, that beast. It's a gorgeous beast. It shoots phenomenal pictures. And I love the large size of it because I had these big hands. And I really, if I had the money, man, I would just love to have one of those cameras. Well, now, you always hear me talking about used prices, Mitch. And right here is an example. If you want to roll into a 1DX, the predecessor to the 1DX Mark II, you can pick one up. For sub three thousand uh, dollars, these wow. are very affordable prices. Usually come with a couple of these batteries. Now your LPE six batteries, of course, won't work with the One DX because it uses that large single format battery. But man, that's like a eleven frames per second, maybe twelve frames per second burst mode. Uh, beautiful features. Missing a headphone jack, of course. Uh, so cool. not quite as good as the 5D Mark II in the video department, but a really sexy camera. Now, we're improving on that with the 1DX Mark II at a substantial price jump, of course, because this is a brand new camera. The 1DX has been out for, what, a year and a half? Two years? Yeah. 
the 1DX? No, it's been out almost as long as the 5D Mark III. Three was, years that long, huh? It's been a three years. Yeah, I mean, it's four years since the 5D Mark I will say four. God. 5D Mark III has been out four years come March, so we expect that to be coming out shortly. So the obvious addition to the 1DX Mark II is a headphone jack. We've finally got a little tiny 3.5 millimeter hole added to the camera so you can listen to audio uh, while you're recording video. Of course, they've added the feature of the 1DC, which is 4K recording. Now, one of the complaints I have right away is motion JPEG. And uh, I've got a little note here at the bottom of the show notes of me complaining about Motion JPEG. And there's a number of things that are an issue with Motion JPEG as a 4K format. And number one is NLEs. Uh, Premiere has trouble with it. Uh, you know, Flame, other editing systems have trouble with it. It's Sony Vegas, good luck. Uh, all these editing systems don't work very well with Motion JPEG. So if you ever got any footage from the 1DC, chances are you're probably going to transcode that into something like DNX HD or ProRes to work on it in your editor. And those are really frustrating things. The other issue is motion JPEG, uh, because of the way it compresses, gives you some banding and some other issues that uh, could be avoided with some of these other codecs that are a little bit easier to work with and uh, more computer friendly. Mitch, do you have anything to complain about with motion JPEG? Uh, considering I have not used it, I can't complain about it too much. I do hear a lot of grumbling across the net about that. Um, I don't have any insider knowledge as to why Canon continues to go down that path. I mean, the, you, you, you were talking about the 1DC, for example. <clears throat> Where's this frog coming from? One thing missing from the 1DX that the 1DC has is Canon Log. So they've put the Motion JPEG in here, but you don't have the Canon Log to be able to have that, quote, really flat image to be able to beef up in post-production that the 1DC has. So there's a delineation there that they're potentially going to keep in the 1DC that's not in the 1DX. I don't know why. Uh, we're going to talk about another camera that's $1,000 in a little while that has S-Log in it. At a thousand dollars, so let me just let me just quickly run through some of the good stuff, right? This dual pixel CMOS, I you threw CMOS in there. The dual pixel autofocus, uh, and what they're calling Mer <laughs> Movie Servo AF looks to be really really sexy. There's a video that Canon put out that shows you some examples of that. Uh, a friend of mine who's down in Australia, uh, Abraham Jaffe, shot a video which we put on the Planet 5D posts uh, yesterday. He's really excited about the autofocus capabilities, and he shows some tests in that video uh, of walking in darkness in a parking lot while it's snowing and, and testing the autofocus. Uh, he also went underwater with some whales and pretty impressive footage. Uh, so it, it does well in low light. It has the, the, the new autofocus capabilities. I mean, one of the things that Barry uh, used to really complain about with autofocus with things like the T4, T5i with the, the dual pixel in it 
is if you have somebody walk in front of the camera. Now, obviously, if you're shooting a movie, you know if somebody's going to walk in front of the camera. But if you were out shooting a documentary or something, you're constantly afraid, or even behind the camera, you're constantly afraid that that moving object is going to steal focus. Yep. And Canon has added in the Mervy, I did it again, Mervy, the movie servo uh, options, the ability to basically turn that off or to have it turned on so that if fast moving objects come in, then they will be picked up by the autofocus. So they've addressed that issue. Obviously, we haven't tested it yet, but in the demo, it looks pretty sexy. Now, I watched a couple of the demos, and it looked like they were using the STM lenses and not the standard USM lenses. Uh, Do you think the AF system will only operate that fast with the stepper motor style lenses, or will we be getting those out of the ultrasonic lenses as well? According to that video that Canon put out, they specifically mention all EF lenses. And so uh, I heard that, but I saw the STM. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know. There was a video that uh, newsshooter.com put out where they got their hands on uh, one, I almost said 1DC, uh, 1DX Mark II. Uh, They did not specify which lenses they were using, though. So I I don't have any firm answer for that. Obviously, when we get our hands on one, because B&H will send us both one for testing, uh, wink, wink. Well, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've I've noticed, and if you use one of these AF systems, especially the ultrasonic system, uh, even though you don't hear the lens focusing, it's actually quite loud. Uh, yeah. It's just in a range you can't hear. And a lot of times it'll mess with audio receiving equipment that's close to the lens while the lens is autofocusing. Uh, I've had this happen multiple times with uh, wireless systems where... I, I get this weird kind of like complete silence, but really just strange sounding. And it, you look at the audio pattern and you're actually blowing out the mic because it's catching some of the signal that you can't hear really? while it's close to the USM lens while it's autofocusing. Really strange. Uh, one example, if you, if you want to try this at home, take a microphone or your H1 or something like that and place it close to your Canon glass and focus and you'll hear it go completely silent and you think it's going completely silent, but it's actually just blowing out the mic in the frequencies that the lens is operating at, which is, it's really strange. So just be aware of that. I'm not sure how that will end up affecting you as a a regular autofocus system. If you have a mic attached to your camera, Uh, looking at the rest of these specs though, they are offering DCI, which is the full 4K 4096 by 2160 uh, frame size. We are dealing with a crop, though, here, Mitch. Uh, looks like they're going to have to crop in just a little bit on the sensor. So what is this going to be, like a 1.4-ish 1. crop, 1.5 crop? Uh, my math came up with 1.3, and so did uh, NewShooter.com. Um this, it, the exciting part of that is, though, that they're also doing up to 60 frames per second. Um, so you can get some sl- still motion. So slow motion? Still motion. Slow motion in 4K with that slight crop factor. So, yeah, there is there is that. And the fact that the, 4K, I'm sorry, the 1080 goes up to 120 frames per second makes this the only DSLR that I'm aware of that does 120 frames per second which is awesome, right? <laughs> I, you know, 
unless it if it looks good. Um, a, a lot of these high frame rates that you see in Sony cameras, uh, great. You know, you can shoot at 120 frames per second, but uh, when you get the footage, it's not so good, or you're limited to. Oh. I think uh, the X10 and X100 had a limit of three or five seconds, something in that range. So you could shoot at 120 frames, but you could only do it for like three or four seconds. Wow. Which is pretty frustrating. Um, looking through these specs, though, are you surprised that Canon didn't go crazy on the megapixels for this camera? I'm surprised by a lot of things that Canon did with this camera. Uh, and, and I should say disappointed in some respects, of course. Um, I, I don't think that the high-end pros really care about the megapixel rates. Uh, Canon has the 5DS and the 5DR in order if you really need it. Uh, so I, I think the issue tends to be more of speed. Um, by the way, uh, I was thinking specifically like of a sport shooter. Uh, you, if you, if you boost the camera into a uh, much higher, uh, megapixels, then if you want the high 14 frames per second burst rate, uh, for stills, then trying to shove 50 megapixels down the pipe is probably a lot harder than doing uh, uh, 20 megapixels, which is what this is. The, the demo so, video, when they were operating the uh, 14 frames per second, was just, it was intense, just like a shotgun going off. And then yeah. they're like, and we can lock the shutter up and do 16 frames per second. And I believe that's that's a couple frames per second faster than uh, Nikon's D5 is going to be offering. So yeah. now I bring the D5 up for a reason, and, and that's because I've got a comparison chart here that's kind of interesting, showing the differences between uh, these two cameras. And this is coming off of photographylife.com. And basically these cameras are running really close in specs. We're seeing the same, pretty much the same sensor resolution. We're seeing about the same ISO range. Uh, looks like Nikon has pushed their, num <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pushed their numbers up to some wackiness there that I, I don't know if I necessarily trust, but, yeah. uh, where it kind of starts to differ here is we're looking at uh, frames per second. Uh, the AF systems, are different. Uh, Nikon is, looks like is offering more continuous raw images uh, before the buffer runs out. And then otherwise, these are really similar cameras and they're priced very similarly too. A difference of what, $500 between these two cameras? Yeah. Well, let me ask you. I mean, I, I'm not the kind of shooter that shoots a whole lot of bursts. Does it really matter whether you're getting a 170 frames at 14 frames per second or 200. Does it really matter to anybody? Uh, sometimes it does. And it's not because you're sitting there just holding the button down continuously. What ends up happening, um, for an example, if you don't have the option to stage something at a wedding and you're shooting a bunch of stuff simultaneously, sometimes you'll just cheat and you'll put it into burst mode. So you, you fire a few off here, you fire a few off there, and pretty soon over the course of like 15 minutes or 20 minutes of you know bursting out 15 or 20 pictures at a time, your buffer fills up. And that buffer overrun will stop you from capturing another image uh, while you're, you're walking around taking pictures of all these kids playing and you know wedding <laughs> things happening and so on. And that's just one example, but in sporting events, it's an, it's another great example. You'll have 
you know, three or four heats going on simultaneously and you need to get shots of this, you need to get shots of the next one and you're continually bursting out, you know, 15 or 20 shots here, 15 or 20 shots there. And pretty soon your buffer fills up and you can't keep up with it. And that's a issue that you'd run into with the 7D when I was shooting with that is you love the burst mode, but if you use it too much, you're going to get stuck for 30 seconds or a minute waiting for the buffer to clean out. Now, that higher number means you're probably going to be able to, you know, rush images out of that buffer much faster than you would otherwise, which means more shots. Although I will say shooting in burst mode, processing images is the worst. It's horrible. Yeah. Which, which gets us, by the way, to taking 8.8 um, megapixel still frame grabs from video, which is another feature that they tout a lot in the promotional materials. Uh, and we've talked about that before. With the 1DC, if you look at some of the examples where they pulled an image from the motion JPEG stream and compared it to an actual JPEG taken by the camera, they did look pretty good. Um, I'm yeah. guessing we're going to get the same out of the 1DX Mark II. I'm, I'm sure they look fantastic. Uh, the question is, how, how long are you going to sit there with the play button and be going frame by frame through a video to grab a still in the camera? I might do it. <laughs> I'd be more tempted to do it on the, ca on the computer than in camera myself but again i'm not a pro i'm not going out and shooting uh and and you want to dive into one of my other pet peeves okay let's do it while we're there i mean all right so if you were doing this jpeg thing and you're having to press a button to do that right canon added touch screen to this camera which I'd love. I'm like, yes, there's touch screen on this camera. But guess what? It's only available for the autofocus thing in live view. <laughs> you, can't, <clears throat> you can't do any of the moves. So if you've got a T4i, the old, you know, four, two-year-old, two, two three-year-old technology has a touchscreen LCD. And you can flip through things with your finger just like you can your iPhone if you're, if you're displaying images on the back of the camera, right? You can flip through them with your little finger. You can do all the menus with your finger. You can do every function with your finger on the LCD. And it's awesome to be able to get through the menus quickly. And so they add touchscreen to the 1DX Mark II, and the only thing you can do with it is autofocus. It just drives me bonkers. I know I hear Canon in the background saying, Oh, well, professionals don't want touch screen, so why would we put it on there? That was my Canon professional. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I'm like, okay, fine, so don't put it on there. Put it on there. They did it. Why not just give us the option to turn it on or off, which they did, by the way. So you can turn the LCD touch screen function off if you want to. But why not just add the menus to it? If the professionals don't want it, then they don't have to have it. But give us the option. Well, and I find myself with several touchscreen cameras that I've gotten in the habit of using both the scroll wheel and the touchscreen because you have two hands and you're holding right. the camera here. It's much easier to just sort of tap through the menus and grab stuff. And 
you know, the menus on the 5D Mark III, for example, are pretty deep. And I'm guessing they're going to be just as deep or deeper on the 1DX Mark II. Now, while we're talking about uh, missing features, they've kind of touted the video features as far as AF in video mode and all of the 4K shooting capabilities. But then what do they leave us without? We have no focus peaking on yeah, this camera. No oh, nothing. And yeah, well, I mean, zebras, I can, I can live without those. You know, I can use oh. that on an external monitor. That's not something I rely on. But how many uh, Canon Cinema Primes do they have out there? How many other options that are manual focus? And no focus peaking at all or focus assist of any kind? That is, that's a huge oversight to me, especially oh. since this almost feels like, and I know they're missing the log format, so maybe this right. isn't, part of the the C series, but it feels like the next iteration in their video product line and they're taking some just a few things out. Are they going to release a $7,000 version of this camera and call it the 1DC Mark II? Is that what we're going to do? Come on. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, in their defense, you don't need focus assist because the autofocus system is so perfect. You don't you trust it. You just are going to trust it. Manual so focus lenses, though. <laughs> oh, people still use those? I have a whole bunch of them in my collection of various flavors, and we are continually seeing new Cinema Primes being released by all kinds of different companies all across the board from full frame all the way down to micro four thirds. Everybody is getting back into having a follow focus, loving that sort of look and working with the camera in that manner. And then we don't get focus peaking and focus assist on this camera. Oh, huh? yeah, I don't I don't get it. I'm, I was playing devil's advocate there, <laughs> you know, but I don't I mean, because we're going to talk about a thousand dollar camera, by the way, that has that. Right. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's roll uh, into that. Or do you have anything else to add before we leave the 1DX Mark II? Let me let me just clarify, by the way, for anybody that happens to be watching that saw Barry and I bash Canon left and right in that video that I did uh, about the Wi-Fi, because this camera doesn't have Wi-Fi in it. Uh, I've spoken to a couple of people and become educated, by the way. On why it doesn't have Wi-Fi? Yeah, doesn't have Wi-Fi because the titanium body doesn't let the Wi-Fi signal through very easily, and the consumer cameras are plastic and cheap steel and everything else, and so Wi-Fi goes through those pretty easily. So what I was told was that, especially like sports photographers and guys who are in a hurry, they want extremely reliable Wi-Fi, and because of the, the titanium body and the way they do the weather ceiling on this. It just doesn't make sense. So I bashed them for trying to sell a $600 dongle uh, when in reality, there's a good scientific reason for it not to be on the body. So Canon, there's one for you. You win that one. Yeah, I'm holding up the uh, 6D right now, and that does have Wi-Fi capability. And you'll notice right here that there is a cutout in the frame all the way around the top. And the entire body is made out of magnesium, uh, some kind of alloy, except for the top portion, which is just a plastic resin. And right. that plastic resin is where the Wi-Fi antenna is located on this. 
by contrast, the 5D Mark III, which I have right here, is nice and solid all the way across the body range. So this is a very, I mean, it's not completely dangerous, but if I drop this from five feet and it lands like this, chances are it'll bust through this as as opposed to busting through the rest of the body, which is right. very understandable. Although the Wi-Fi dongle also leaves you exposed because now you have a thing that's made out of less material with like a connector sticking out of the side of the camera. Right. I, I don't know. The Now that I see Wi-Fi and everything, I kind of want it in everything. And at first I thought it was just a, a really dumb feature, but now like the camera I'm using right now, I literally logged in with my phone and set it up so that I don't have to actually touch the camera or reach any of the controls. And it's, it's very handy. So right. I, I can see your complaint, but this high level of a camera, man, they got to make them, make them solid. If I'm spending $6,000, I better get a Cadillac. <laughs> and that's true. You, yeah, I, I are really am excited. I wish I could afford one of these beasts because I would buy one in a second because they're just flat out sexy. But one other complaint, last complaint, unless you've got anything else, is that the Nikon screen is nicer than the Canon screen. Uh, if you look at the resolution, Canon stuck with uh, one of their off-the-shelf screens from a previous model. Nikon went up to, a, I think, a 2.6 megapixel screen. So really? a, the, a few rants in the forums have said that it, the people that have seen these cameras on, you know, on stage... You know, that, I don't know how much that is worth. They say that the Nikon right. screen looks much nicer than the Canon screen. Now, I have not seen either one of those in person, so I don't know. But right. it, that sounded that sounded like kind of a hole in Canon's uh, uh, imaging lineup there. Okay. <laughs> no one cares. Yeah. All right. Moving on <laughs> to the next camera, we've got the Sony A6300. This is an incredibly well-priced $1,000 camera, actually $998, so almost $1,000. This camera features a ton of stuff for the price, and it is a update to the very popular A6000 series camera, which was down to, I believe, $500 new. Uh, that packed a lot of features. This is going to have the same megapixel sensor. We're also getting 4K internal recording as well as a oh oh, oh 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 we missed one dj i gotta back up uh oh all right back to the 1dx mark ii well we and why didn't we put it in the show notes or did i and i just missed it oh there it is see you got 4k on this beast right okay but it won't send 4k out hdmi so you can't use an external recorder and record 4k with this piece Really? The only way to record 4K is internally. So that was my other, huh? I don't understand that. You do get clean HDMI out, though, Mitch. So, yeah. you know, just use your 1080p signal. I mean, don't even worry about the 4K signal. Well, in the in the Canon video, it was very obvious that the, the way he phrased it was, you know, well, you can send your signal out. So if you're doing an external monitor, you know, like for a director or a customer or something, they could watch what's going on. So that's their only reason for sending anything out is not to a recorder, but to send it to an external monitor for somebody else to watch. So anyway, I'm sorry I forgot that, but I don't understand that one either. So move on. 
All right. <laughs> Back to the A6300. This is a sexy, very affordable camera. It's featuring many of the upgrades to the A7 line. So that means the specialty hot shoe that supports their K1M XLR adapter for audio inputs. And you can see right here with this lovely picture that they've got that installed on the A6300. Now, going through the features, we've got a not a huge jump in specs, but they've added key things that make this really awesome for the price. We're talking 4K internal recording. We have basically the same burst mode that was available in the A6000, and we have S-Log 3 and S-Log 2 available for this camera, as well as focus peaking and all the other stuff that you would want out of a regular video shooting DSLR. Now, this is APS-C sensor, but the crop factor isn't that much more than what you would get out of both the Nikon D5 and the Canon 1DX Mark II. Mitch, what are your thoughts on the A6300? Uh, I think you just go ahead and you buy three of these and you've got a 5D Mark III in price. Well, of course, the price is down, but uh, it's, a, it's, it's amazing when you compare the two. Now, this says 11 frames per second stills, right? That's correct. Uh, you got 14 frames per second on the 1DX Mark II. It's very close. That's pretty close. But the uh, buffer is, uh, I believe, 21 I shots. Mean, yeah, so, sure. you know, you're going to go through that in two seconds. Right. Um, they're really touting the autofocus on this this beast uh if you watch any of the videos and i don't know how they do those by the way i don't because the videos they show uh what the autofocus points are uh and i don't know i don't know how they're doing i guess they're faking it in post to be real right and i've you, seen you, some of them have a gopro actually strapped to the eyepiece really yeah uh I, it, it was really goofy but uh I've seen people because when you, sometimes you'll see these very lovely shots of the AF system in practice, where you would have to put your eye to see what's going on, and they actually right. take a camera and strap it to the back of the camera, and then just move it around and use the AF. So that, hey, that could be possible. Yeah, uh, and and the demo of the autofocus, like in a car and a dune rally or outdoor rally kind of thing looks amazing in terms of how well it autofocuses and how quickly it does because cars obviously are racing very very quickly around a course uh, so it'd be interesting to see that and how well i mean they really tout that autofocus speed as being the fastest on the planet um, i'm gonna say got, probably not um sony has never been really good in the af department i would what? I would venture to say since they've increased the number of contrast points on the A6300 versus the A6000 that this will do better than the A6000 in the AF department. But as far as even remotely competing with a, a lot of what Canon and Nikon are offering, I would say it's probably going to be a bit laggy. That would be my like two cents. Falling for the hype? Is that what you're telling me? Yes, definitely. Well, they, definitely got 400, they got 425 phase detection autofocus points. That's a huge number. Yeah, you know, they can cover the entire screen with dots, and it will still focus on the wrong thing. <laughs> oh, okay. 
So I fell for it. Okay, that's all right. They've done. They have done some upgrades with the <laughs> AF system, though. You can now cluster those points into a group, which gives right. you like a range as opposed to a single point. So that's more like the feature you see on the 5D Mark III, where you can group a bunch of these AF points together, and that is better. That will most likely give you an upgrade in performance. A few people I talked to were a little disappointed that the sensor is basically the same. They've increased the ISO range, but the sensor specs haven't really changed at all. So your low light performance on this guy is probably going to be about the same. But still, at this price, is this a must-buy, Mitch? Uh, it's it's pretty dead-gum impressive. Uh, I, I thought... And again, it's marketing potentially. Uh, the electronic viewfinder that they are claiming as "quote near DSLR" unquote performance, because they're feeding the image in as 120 frames per second. Yeah, it's like it's like matching the you know you go to the TV store and they say, well, you can watch this in 240 frames per second, so it's going to be like the refresh rate is like incredible, man. And you're like, okay, does that really make it a better thing? I don't know. The other thing that's uh, interesting and very sexy about this offering is because this is an APS-C size sensor, you can put a speed booster in front of it. And with the speed booster, your multiplier then becomes 0.71, which gets you almost down to a full-frame image with one-stop better low-light performance on this body. So... Add a $600 adapter from, say, Metabones, and now you are competing with some of the much, much more expensive cameras on the market, and it's also in a super sexy package. Would you? What about that combination, Mitch? What do you think? You're going to throw a Metabones speed booster on your A6300 and then put your Canon glass on there and enjoy even slower autofocus? <laughs> Uh, okay, no. Um, at this point, I, I, Sony is putting out so many awesome features, and we didn't we didn't mention, by the way. I don't think I even noticed. Does this have the five-axis dual stabilization? No, right? that is one of the things that's missing from this camera that uh, I was a little disappointed with. Is it seems like they were rolling out uh, image stabilization across the board for the entire a7 line and i was hoping to see at least three axis on sensor image stabilization uh there is no image st stabilization on sensor for the a6300 it's it's completely missing that so you're gonna have to rely on is in the lenses and i believe there are some aps-c size lenses in sony's lineup that do have uh, is built into them to compensate for that but that was sort of disappointing still thousand dollars <laughs> There's a lot of things that are very appealing to this, and there are, are certainly, uh, if you have done any online reading, you can tell that there are a lot of people that are leaning from Canon to Sony because it just seems like Sony's innovating more. I mean, it, I mean look at this. This is a $1,000 camera, it, and of course, comparing it to 1DX, we can't really say because they're apples and oranges, right? This is a mirrorless and the 1DX is a mirrored DSLR that's a, a large physical body that's built for pros who are shooting sports and stuff. 
So that's not really totally fair to compare them. But yet on the video side, here Sony is putting in 4K. They're putting in 120 frame per second in HD. They've got S-Log. They've got the Zebras and the focus assist stuff that Canon doesn't seem to want to put on there. Uh, so, I mean, it's it just sort of goes back to Canon wanting to protect their high-end line of of the or the cinema line of stuff, and they're just not putting everything that people really want. So, yes, it, it's I sorry they're they're different prices, they're different types of cameras, uh, but when people see this. They're leaning towards moving to Sony stuff, especially with the next story, uh, with them talking, with their releasing new new lenses. Well, before you roll into Sony's uh, G Master lenses, which uh, sounds a little sounds a little dirty, I, you know. When I first heard <laughs> G Master, I'm like, maybe you should have researched that in the American market before you uh, decided ah. to go with that. Um, one more thing I wanted to mention before we leave the A6300 is actually the fact that they're oversampling the sensor and then giving you a 4K image. Uh, that is really interesting as opposed to doing a ton of uh, pixel bending like we've seen in the past with uh, some of these 1080p images. They're oversampling and then reducing in camera, which will give you a much cleaner image out of the sensor. The other uh -huh. thing I wanted to mention that's really nice about this is this is one of the first full-fledged, uh, even if it's APS-C cameras, that's available for under $1,000 uh, right out of the gate that shoots 10 or 4K in camera. And that basically means that anybody starting out now can go grab a camera from Sony and shoot 4K. Now, I know there are other options, like the you know if you don't want an interchangeable lens, there are a bunch of less expensive options. But this is basically with the speed booster, a full frame image. So you're getting that beautiful look, uh, the shallow depth of field that you, you want. And it's not like a M43 camera where you are getting, you know, F18-esque depth of field out of a 0.95 lens. That makes this really attractive. I want that look in 4K and I don't want to spend $10,000 on a camera. Now you can spend $1,000 on a camera and get that look. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I, I'm, I just sold myself. I'm going to buy this camera. I will. Uh, it's on my buy list. I'm, I'm getting it now. Okay, buy one for me, will you? Um, I we didn't talk about the codec. What I didn't I didn't research. What what are they outputting 4K in? They're using a XAVC at 100 megs. So. Okay. It's roughly the same as the codec being used in the uh, seven, the A7 lineup. Uh, I'm assuming it's pretty much the same implementation. Uh, that's just basically Sony's H.264 flavoring with a, a dash of love on top. Okay, uh, let me ask you another question. Uh, do you... Because you know everything about cameras, and I'm constantly awed at your knowledge. You just talked about the oversampling as opposed to the pixel binning. If there's any people out there, me, who don't totally understand what's going on with this oversampling, I understand pixel binning because pixel binning has to do with taking something that's not quite the right size and throwing a whole bunch of pixels away, right? So 
that I think is okay to understand. What does oversampling do for me? Why 6K? Think about oversampling like working in Photoshop. If you have a, a 20 megapixel image and at the end of the day you want to output a, a 1.2 megapixel image, you're as opposed to throwing away information, you are scaling that down via an algorithm to the size to fit the 1.6 megapixel image. Uh, with this, a 6K is obviously a bigger image size than a 4K image, so they are basically scaling that down without pixel bending, which, which base, I mean, I'm trying to think of an easy layman's terms way of explaining it. Take an image in Photoshop that's really big, you know, go get a 20 megapixel image out of your camera and scale that down. And suddenly your, your noise goes away because everything becomes finer. The, the individual pixels, uh, are less crawly when you have high ISO and so on. Mitch, I don't think I'm very good at explaining this one in a way that is is better science. I am I, I, bad today. That's okay. I think that that certainly helps. Everybody knows that if you take, like you say, uh, images look sharper. They look better when they're oversampled or when they're reduced in size. One's a scaling um, issue based on log format or a logarithm, and the other one is an averaging format where it takes uh, the pixels near each other and averages them out to a single color. That that's the basics of it. But to to right. come up with like a really beautiful analogy, uh, analogy for it, I'm I'm failing. I'm flailing okay. miserably. Well, but I, I I just thought it was interesting, uh, and I do know that sometimes we have people that don't understand all the buzzwords that we throw around so sometimes i'd like to take us back a step and go well let's just think about those words for a second the other thing that i think is really fascinating about this is that here's a camera that's a thousand dollars it's recording 6k so they're grabbing you know the basically the full hunk of the sensor and they're oversampling it to 4k on the fly Right? So there's a whole bunch of math going on inside the camera. And if you think about the 1DX Mark II, it has two processors in it, and they still are outputting crappy motion JPEG. Uh, and I just don't, I, you know, with all that processing power, couldn't they give us a better codec out? I mean, hell, they could probably do ProRes with that much computer power, couldn't they? Yeah, but if they start doing that sort of thing, they're going to eat up their their higher-end cameras. Oh, wait. They're going back to that. Protection of the upper line. Well, and you mentioned uh, dual processors. Also, the new CFast cards and uh, the Q, what-have-you cards that they're using now are really, really fast. So they don't have any excuse as far as the, the path the data has to take to the card. Uh, right. You know, there there is really basically and the same with focus speaking, some of these other things. Sony obviously can implement that via software in this uh, sub one thousand dollar camera where Canon has chosen not to implement it. And it's not because they can't. It's just because they won't. It, there's going to be a good joke. Can't Canon can't can't someone yeah. work on that for me? Yeah. And I thought it was funny. I'm still going. We're still going back to Canon. And, you know, Canon. Let me say, Canon puts out some awesome cameras. They're not paying me to say that. I'm a Canon boy since day one. 
I really love the feel and the build and the look of what comes out of my 5D Mark III. So that being said, somebody on one of the forums said about S or C log not being on the camera. I said, well, Canon's going to add that in firmware update. I said, no. Why, why would they go back and add something that they would have marketed on day one? They're smart people. They're not going to put C-Log in here in a firmware update later on, people. Come on, quit dreaming. They're giving you the camera that they think you want now. Anyway, rant. Well, and rant. if they added C-Log to that camera, they would not have an option to do a 1DC Mark II. Exactly. And that's what they want. Uh, the C-Line yeah. is going to continue to be pushed forward for quite some time until it either falls completely on its face and they move back to the DSLR format or it takes off and becomes the number one in the video format, and they start reducing. Well, it is. I mean, you, uh, I see C three hundred, C one hundreds all over the place. They're selling a boatload of those cameras. You they can't give a away a C one hundred these days, man. I mean, they are they are paperweights. You better keep shooting on those because they're only worth like a grand. Well, and, and but that's I mean just look at the one DX you just showed us the price is less than half on the resale market right now right that is true I mean, cameras are not holding we talked about this a couple of weeks ago it, it used to be that you could you could sell your camera for maybe just twenty five percent less of what you paid for it so it was kind of like a really good investment like buying a BMW and and selling it later for nearly the price you paid for it. That's not true with the with these cameras anymore. I mean that 1DX pricing that you showed it was twenty nine hundred dollars. But the one DX Mark One was I swear it was seven thousand dollars when it came out. Yeah, I think it was so, above six thousand at least. So, you know you can't really use that argument anymore that 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 anyway. Also, I have a unnatural hatred for the C100 and C300 lineup. So that's my personal vendetta yeah. against those two cameras because I, I had a lot of issues with them. All right, moving But anyway, go ahead. Let's talk about lenses. Let's talk about something happy here as opposed to getting grumpy about Canon because <laughs> that can go in uh, pretty deep. All right, so Sony has released a new line of lenses, and finally we're getting some... FE mount. If you're not familiar with FE mount, that is full frame E mount glass. And you got to be careful when you're buying a Sony glass because you have E mount, which could be APS-C or full frame. And then you have FE, which is not always labeled that, but sometimes just labeled E mount. And then it'll say full frame somewhere in the text. Uh, the problem with the FE mount lenses was that they weren't offering very many uh, wide aperture lenses in the zoom range, i.e. the 24 to 70 was an f4 the 16 to 35 was an f4 the 70 to 200 was an f4 now with the g master line we're going to start to see some more traditional flavored lenses a 70 to 200 f2.8 with built-in is a 24 to 70 f2.8 and of course a 85 millimeter f1.4 they've also added a 2x and a 1.4x extender uh these lenses look really nice but man sony really thinks highly of their glass uh pricing is going to start in the 2200 dollar range 
Mitch, how do you think these compare to the $1,800, $1,600 prices we see from Canon for similar pieces of kit? I'd love to see them. Of course, we've got to see some results, right? You talk about specs versus reality. They must think that they're really, really good lenses to be asking these kind of prices. Uh, obviously, lenses are an investment, and they do typically retain their value, unlike camera bodies these days. So if you're going to spend any money, spend it on lenses, because bodies are throwaway to much a degree. And maybe it's it's sort of an indication that Sony has learned from Canon that the money's in the lenses as opposed to the body. Uh, so it's the the option of the Gillette razor technology or concept here where you uh, sell a really cheap body, a really cheap razor in order to sell the lenses to go with it, right? So if you get everybody moving over to Sony and they get really excited, well, they're, they've got to beef up their line of Sony glass and trade in their Canon or Nikon or whatever. So, hey, let's make some money on the lenses. The thing that um, worries me, though, about Sony glasses, it's it's quite a bit less adaptable than Canon or Nikon lenses right. uh, because of the flange distance to the sensor. So you're really all in on a Sony lens. You buy it, you're in the Sony camp period. At least with Canon glass or Nikon glass, you can always put a reducer on there and go to a mirrorless body if you'd want later on and there are even options to adapt uh, some lenses from other brands to that camera body uh, with the sony you buy these lenses for i would say arguably five to six hundred dollars more than their competition in the canon and nikon realm and you are stuck period <laughs> and what if sony uh, flails in the photography department and uh, drops out of this market could this be another I don't know, uh, Pentax. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you got stuck with a bunch of white whale stuff that you can't sell, right? I don't know. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's good to see that they're trying to uh, enhance their lines so that they've got better quality lenses for those people who are coming over. But it is a little scary, like you said. I'm, I think that's a very, very good point. And again, which is... Typically why I'm sticking with Canon. I've got an investment in Canon glass. I like the way it works. Uh, as much as as much as we complain about some of the feature sets, uh, I think the 1DX Mark II is going to get a lot of excitement. Uh, I'm, I'm still not moving over to Sony, so a lot of people are talking about it and maybe doing it, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. As an A7S owner... It's still not my primary camera. I I like the A7S, but things like AF are not there. Uh, controls, <laughs> the menu system. Uh, I complain about Canon's menu system, but boy, Sony, <laughs> they really take it up a notch to the next level. And it's uh, it can be really frustrating to figure out how to get to something or to find the thing that you need to tweak. Uh, definitely not excited about that. <sighs> I don't know. I think they're overvaluing this glass pretty substantially. The the seventeen or the sixteen to thirty five f four and the twenty four to seventy f four from Sony were priced similarly eighteen hundred dollars, seventeen hundred dollars for those lenses when they were first announced. And I just bought uh, 
the 24 to 70 F4 for like 500 bucks and the guy could barely give it away. And, <laughs> and he was crying. He wasn't crying, but he was really sad when he gave it to me. He like guilted me by handing me his uh, B&H receipt with the lens. And he's like, this is what I paid for it. And it was like $1,400 or, or some substantial amount like that. He's like, uh, and it just, it, it never worked great on my A7S and it was never really that great of a lens. And I worry that this G Master lineup isn't going to be quite as good as what we're seeing from uh, Canon and Nikon. Uh, I am really interested to see the uh, comparisons when these lenses actually hit the market. Maybe someone can do a side by side. And, you know, normally I'm not interested in the image charts, but with these, I kind of am because I want to see how they compare. Yeah. Um, it all comes down to what you like, doesn't it? I mean, it really, it really does. It comes down to we can pixel peep and we can bitch and moan and complain about features that aren't there. Uh, but if you can get good images, good video that your customer likes, then it's all that matters, right? It's true. So take a look for the G Master lenses. Uh, that's a weird name again caught me off guard um last thing here we got a couple questions from you guys uh we're done with the a6300 and the 1dx mark ii uh the first one up is a question about the t2i screen going dark when you plug a doi usb uh audio adapter into the t2i camera body and the answer to that question is magic lantern if you go to the audio menu there you can actually scroll down and find the headphones enabled switch. So you turn that on and suddenly when you plug in the USB port for your headphone adapter for your camera, you will now have on-screen display as well as audio out via the adapted USB headphone jack. Uh, that is a specific Magic Lantern feature. So if you are trying to do that without Magic Lantern installed on your T2i, you are not going to be successful. Uh, Mitch, you have anything I got another to... question for you. Okay, you're gonna th- uh, you're gonna get me with one that I'm not prepared for again. No, well, yeah, maybe I don't know. Have you have have you fooled with Magic Lantern much lately? Is there anything really new and sexy in there that we haven't touched? Uh, my installation I... of the T2i is is very solid. Um, in the early days, and I've been running Magic Lantern on that particular body for I don't know seven six years, something like that. It's been quite quite a long run. Uh, it's gone from being sort of this uh, very hackish, uh, not well-tuned menu system to now you turn it on, you use it. It is really sexy. There are some really great features. Um, I have mine set up specifically, you know, the eyepiece detector where you put the camera up and it changes from the screen, the view screen to the eyepiece. Uh, I've got mine set up so that you move your finger over it once and it'll bring up audio and video controls on screen that work with the dial you move your finger over it again and it'll change to uh, iso settings and white balance settings and those sorts of things are really nice once you get used to them it messes with people who have not used a camera set up that way because they're trying to figure out like why does this keep popping up on screen but if you know about it and you set it up that that's a really great feature and uh, basically i would say they've refined everything possible on the T2i down to where I, I don't call it a hack as much anymore as I just say it's a, a great option for uh, T2i owners. Um, 
the disappointing thing is they haven't made much headway on audio features for cameras like the 6D, the T3i, and pretty much everything above the T2i. And the issue has been for quite some time that the T2i used a very common audio chipset, and it was easy for them to figure out. The newer versions, the T3i, Canon changed it up, and Magic Lantern wasn't able to gain direct access uh, to those particular items. So that's where they're at right now. And if you can go get a used T2i for 150 bucks, and you want to just get into... Uh, interchangeable lens, uh, 1080p shooting, it's still a freaking awesome bargain and uh, a lot of camera for the price, plus all your lens options, of course. And, uh, you know, I I say that, and I actually, right here, (laughs) uh, still, you know, set up, ready to go with my USB audio adapter. I keep two of these around, and I set them up in stationary installs for things that I just need to shoot on repeat on a regular basis. Freaking amazing, cheap camera for video. With a grip. With a grip, yeah. Well, I, don't, don't, the grips, uh, that's me. Don't do that. Um, if you're a Magic Lantern shooter uh, and you have a grip and you start getting weird things happening with your camera, uh, it's most likely the grip. I simply do it because I want longer battery life and I'm willing to put up with uh, having to reset my camera every once in a while. But uh, a lot of people do not recommend the grip. Uh, I won't personally recommend it to anybody unless they're willing to deal with the headache that a grip can entail. But the T2i body, super cheap, really great camera, the best Magic Lantern implementation besides the 5D Mark II that I've seen, period. So it's a no-brainer if you just want a cheap camera. Cool. Great recommendation. Here, let me give you the other sound bite. Well, I thought it was a very lovely story. Now, last one here, and uh, this one's not one that I do a lot of, but I thought maybe I'd throw it at you, Mitch, and see if uh, you had any recommendations. Uh, We have a gentleman asking about options for uh, the best way to work with a client for footage notes. Uh, He's currently using YouTube. Uh, Myself... I actually work one-on-one in Hangouts, and uh, that's why I've upped my game with the camera for uh, video conference calls and things. I share my screen, play the edit all the way through, and then we'll make notes and changes with the client online. But Mitch, you keep up on a lot of these uh, software platforms where you can sort of uh, upload your video and, and do those sorts of things. Do you have any recommendations for methods for sharing notes on a video project uh there are several and i'm i I wish i had them on the top of my tongue Uh, the only one that i know of right off the bat is frame.io that's f-r-a-m-e dot i-o uh it's i've done a little bit of work with it i have not done anything extensively uh but it's it's a great way to upload video and have multiple people give feedback and they can make notes specifically at like a minute and 10 seconds in, they can add a note. Uh, so have a look at frame.io. There's a couple of competitors and I'm sorry, I'm not coming up with those off the top of my head. Uh, the frame.io guys will love me because that's the only one I can come up with. Obviously, their name is simple. That makes it easier to remember. Yeah. 
but it's, I mean, it's really nice if you've got, if you've got somebody that you're wanting to do comparisons with and, and doing it live with something like Google Hangouts is kind of nice because you can go in and do it obviously live and, and physically have that conversation. But if you've got somebody overseas or somebody that's on a different time frame and you just can't get a meeting together, they certainly can go in with frame.io and look at the footage, make comments. Uh, other people can see comments. So it's, it's like, you know, it's like using Google Docs uh, for, for documents, but it's, it's for video and you can upload the video and everybody can see it and it, and it works really well. I've uh, failed a few times where I tried the old upload to YouTube, let them watch and just give me numbers to fix in the timeline. And for whatever reason, the revision that made it to YouTube was a minute and some change off from my actual edit. Uh And then I couldn't find, you know, I had to really dig around and search for the things that they were actually talking about because things had been changed since they'd gone through. Uh, Uh That is not necessarily the best method. Um, I do love the Hangouts, though, because a lot of the people I work with on a regular basis can get on to Hangouts and watch me as I run through the entire timeline. Uh, for me, that is the most useful, but that is working with you know assistant directors, directors, uh, producers, uh, people who kind of know what they're looking for. If you have someone who is not really on the technical side of video editing and you're just working for them to generate you know an advertisement product or something like that it can be a little bit uh, tricky because sometimes they'll ask for things that you wouldn't have expected when they can see the timeline so be very cautious of what you show them you may end up accidentally biting off more work for whatever contracted price you have worked out with them i know that from experience don't do it (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Frame.io looks is looks awesome. I think there, I I think there's a free version if I remember correctly, uh, and I think it's if you start adding people, it gets uh, you have to start paying. But obviously, Google Hangouts and YouTube methodologies are free, uh, but you have issues there. <clears throat> All right. On that note, Mitch, anything else before we get out of here? Um. I had talked last week about a 4K webinar that we have coming up, and we decided to move that out to the future. So that's not happening, and I apologize about that. Uh, we do have a webinar coming up on not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, which I think is the 16th, on time lapse. So if you come over to Plan 5D, we'll be talking about that webinar, and I'll mention it again next week as well. Um, and for directors, if you're if you're a director. I don't know, you and I have talked about this uh, offline, but coming up uh, also the same Tuesday, the 9th, the 16th, will be registration for the Cine Summit, uh, which will be aimed at directors. And this is the fifth Cine Summit, if you've seen any of them before. They're free the day that you watch them. Uh, If you're not able to watch all the videos, then they have a $49 purchase option which you can watch any of the videos offline at any time. So that's going to be coming up, and we'll have a link for that probably next week. And no. That looks to be a, a pretty good event. Uh, yeah. I saw information that they've changed. Was the date 16th originally, or did they change the, the date recently? The, the, we've, yeah. I've been working with Aviv, uh, who is the guy who's putting all that together. 
uh, and we uh, wanted to make sure the back end was working properly. And so he's moved everything a week. So the registration will start on the 16th and the actual event is March 1st and 2nd. Okay. So it's, it's, if you're looking to watch the event, it's going to be March 1st and 2nd. Uh, and we'll talk about that between here and there. Awesome. On my end, a couple of reviews coming from myself and Devin uh, here next week. Uh, the Ceremonic, I've actually got it behind me right here, has turned out to be a pretty excellent device. Uh, testing audio, it sounds pretty good. I understand from talking to Ceremonic that they're going to change out the law. I did have a few complaints about that. And you'll see that in the review. Uh, otherwise, really great system. Be looking for that very shortly. You can find me on iTunes and SoundCloud and anywhere podcasts are distributed. You can find us both on Twitter. I'm at DSLR Film Noob. Mitch, you're at Planet Mitch. And of course, planet5d.com and DSLRFilmNoob.com. This isn't okay. as good of a ramble at the end as I normally do, but I ran out of coffee a little while ago. And. Uh, <laughs> It's all about the coffee, right? So well, uh, thanks, everybody, for coming in. Mitch is playing a few samples. And uh, we will see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. Exciting. <laughs>